Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. If I asked you to name one of history's greatest cover-ups, what would you choose? Genuinely, let's go for it. Any great cover-ups that we know of? Watergate. Okay, do you know, we only know things are cover-ups because they've been uncovered. Otherwise, they're considered conspiracies. But Watergate is, without a doubt, one of the greatest cover-ups in the 20th century. Um, Presumably, you all know the story of Watergate. There were some naughty people breaking into a room in a hotel. Forrest Gump saw some lights on. He called the police, and he blew the case wide open. Um, It ended up in Nixon, the president of the USA, being impeached. He resigned. He was later pardoned by the chap who overtook him. But here's the thing, Watergate was such a famous cover-up and such a big scandal, like when the news broke and various people went to jail and things like that, it spawned a whole series of names and a naming convention that whenever something controversial happens, we throw the word gate on the end of it and we immediately know what's going on. So if I told you, oh, this morning we need to speak about Flowergate, you wouldn't think, well, oh, Flowergate, is, is that a brand? Is that a place? No, you'd know, oh, something's gone on with flowers. There's been some sort of controversy. Somebody has tried to cover it up. I've always, um, with excitement, logged on to BBC News, hoping, praying for that day where something happens controversially in the big, wide, open world of gates so that we can call it Gategate. And that can be like the big headline for the day, that gate, gate has finally happened. Well, we're in 2 Samuel, chapter 11 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, please open to 2 Samuel, chapter 11. And um, we're going to be looking at an incident, a cover-up, and then that cover-up being revealed, if you like. And it's one of the most famous stories coming from the life of David. If you search enough on the web, I'm sure that you'll find the story uh, titled Bathsheba Gate or Uriah Gate or something like that. Um, The people who are involved in this story with David. It's familiar, I'm sure, to most of us. Um, So actually, we probably won't even need to take that long looking at it and discussing it this morning. But if you have your Bible, please open. We'll read portions of it together, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent, and she told David a message, I am pregnant. 
If you've been in Christian circles for any sort of time, you will have heard lots and lots of thoughts on this initial act. Was it adultery? Was it rape? Was it someone with power abusing that power to get what they want from another individual? Looking into the circumstances of why David is in Jerusalem at all? Isn't that how sin starts? Doesn't it start with something small? Doesn't it start with laziness? Doesn't it start with abdicating responsibilities? It literally says the time when kings are supposed to go out to battle, but here we've got the king just at home, at ease, in comfort. There's, there's loads and loads that could be said and that has been said, but I just want us to think about the situation David has got himself into, like the, the, the brass tacks, the bare facts of it all. David has been tempted, seen this woman bathing on the roof for whatever reason then, he thinks that he's in a position to act on that. He inquires, people bring a report back to him that this woman is married, married in fact to someone who is very close to David, one of his mighty men, somebody who has risked his life on numerous occasions to help and to serve David. And so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. They have what is an affair or as some people nowadays think, um, he abuses her in some way, shape or form and he sends her back discards her, sends her home as if the um, whole thing can be forgotten. The language that's used in this passage is actually pretty interesting. If um, you make your way from the start of the Bible uh, and you arrive here, there have been a few occasions where people have done almost exactly the same thing. Now, I, it's twofold, seeing and taking. don't know whether you picked that up. As David stood on the roof, he's described as seeing the woman bathing, and then he sends his messengers to take her. Now, that is the exact same language that's used in Genesis chapter 3. When the woman looks at the fruit that God has forbidden them to eat, she sees it. It's good in her eyes, and so she takes it. It's exactly the same language that's used to describe how Sarai and Abraham deal and abuse Hagar later on in Genesis. They see her as an opportunity, something which can be used to, to grow this family that they want to have, and so they take her and they abuse her. It's used time and time again as like a pattern for the very essence which is seeing and taking of, in our own judgment, doing what we think is right. So David, this wonderful king, this person who has been given to Israel by God to look after them, to lead them, to care for them, just does exactly what we are all guilty of. Sees something and takes it. Falls into sin. However, we end up painting that picture of what that particular sin was. There's a bit more depth to that idea, though, of him being someone who sees and takes, because Samuel, the last judge, if you remember all the way back in 1 Samuel, there was still a character in the story by that name, and he warned the people when they asked for a king, do you know what kings do? Do you know what people who we, we push um, to positions of authority that they cannot handle do? They take from us. They take, they take, they take. Specifically, he, he mentions them taking your, your strong men to go out to battle or, or your wine and your, um, uh, the, 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 the 
best animals from your flocks and the grain from your fields and the money from your pockets. That's what kings do. You elevate someone to a position that they can't really handle over you and they take from you. And the author here picks that idea up as well in a sense with David. Here he is, this man who is in charge of everything. And how does he use that power? He uses that power to take for himself whatever it is that he wants, whether it belongs to him or not. And until we get to verse 5, there's a sense in which all of this can be dealt with really easily. David has, with the knowledge of a few close aides and servants and that, done something which is clearly, clearly, clearly wrong, but now he sent Bathsheba away and nothing more needs to be done. Except in verse 5, things get more tricky. The woman, it says, conceived, and she told David, I am pregnant. And so this announcement of pregnancy turns it into a really difficult situation, doesn't it? For David and for Bathsheba, but what David has done now seems like it could come back to haunt him. That in nine months' time, there is going to be evidence for everyone to hear and to see and to cuddle that points to this great king abusing his power. And so David conspires this great cover-up. I know what I'll do. I'll call for Bathsheba's husband to come home quick sharp, send him home for like a, um, a relief weekend from the battle that's raging against the Ammonites, and then he can go away, and when the baby arrives, we'll just say it was his baby all along. So David sends a message, he calls for Uriah, Joab sends him back, and not once but twice he tries to convince Uriah to go home and to enjoy family life as uh, you might expect. But Uriah is such a man, he is such a man of integrity that David at this point is totally and utterly missing out on that he refuses. Uh, he refuses to go home and to sleep in a bed, let alone sleep with his wife. He refuses to have those home comforts that he understands his fellow comrades out in battle are missing out on. And once, twice, David tries to convince him. He, David even tries to get him drunk in order to persuade him to go home and to do that. And Uriah simply won't have it. So all of a sudden, the cover-up needs to go a little bit deeper it needs to become a bit more serious and sinister and drastic. So let's pick it up in verse, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it in the hand of Uriah. It's horrible. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David has concocted it that he can cover up one transgression, one sin, by calling Uriah back. That hasn't worked out, so now he plots and he schemes to do something even more incredible, which is to conspire for Uriah to be killed. And we'll see that part of that plan then is that David would marry Bathsheba and nobody would be any the wiser. He's just a good man looking after his friend's bereaved family. So Joab does dutifully what he's been told, and we read in verse 24 the report of the battle that Uriah was put into. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, 
is dead also. Now, as we've been making our way through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we've been trying to communicate that not always are the actions of the people we consider goodies, like David, are they told to us so that we can see these are good things that we can be copying. Not always are the actions of the baddies, people usually we associate, like Saul and and things like that, not always are they told to us because they are bad things that we should be avoiding. One of the most frustrating things about reading our Old Testament and the history that's there is that very often we're left to discern and to figure out ourselves whether what's gone on is right or wrong, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Are these examples for us to follow? Are these examples to show us where not to tread? What's going on? And, And sometimes it's hard, really hard, to pick apart in certain situations what's going on. I'm going to wager that nobody sat here this morning is on the fence about David's actions. I'm going to wager that none of us would read chapter 11 and say, do you know what? Spying another man's wife, taking her, bringing her into your home, um, having an affair with her, abusing her, whatever it happened to be, sending her away, conspiring then to kill her husband to cover up that sin. Nobody is sitting here this morning thinking, I'm not sure, because I always thought David was a goodie. So maybe this is a good story, is it? No, well, we're all sat here, and we all know that these things are clearly, obviously, patently wrong. And yet, it's an odd situation in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're told explicitly how God views these actions. In verse 27... The chapter closes with this description. The thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The thing that David had done is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as we're reading through it, it like if we'd just opened up in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and made our way here, this would be one of the points where we would, quite within our rights, be able to say, well, duh, It is, of course, up until this point, practically the most evil thing that we've heard described. Uh, Nobody was suggesting that God would be pleased with David or indifferent with David. Obviously, we all could see that this is an evil thing. So maybe you've been left frustrated at other points where no comment was passed. And now maybe you're frustrated saying, we don't need you to weigh in on this situation. But this description of how God views the situation is there to contrast and to show us something a little bit about ourselves. Back in verse 25, having received the news that Uriah was now dead, David sent another message to Joab, and this is how he phrased it, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. And so we've got two contrasting reviews, really, or descriptions of everything that has gone on. We've got the Lord who sees it and says, that is evil. And we've got David who sees it, and whether he believes it or not, whether he's trying to convince himself or not, whether he's just trying to convince Joab, says this thing, don't let it be evil in your sight. It's no big deal. Just carry on as you were. And I think, really, that conclusion to the chapter teaches us two important things. Number one is that we will say whatever it takes to convince ourselves and to convince others that what we have done is right if it benefits us. 
Like, in what world could David genuinely think what he's done is okay? In what world could David think that he could speak to the man he's instructed to commit murder and say, do you know what? Not a big deal, okay? Forget about it. Move on. That's what we're like. We are people who will believe anything if it's for our benefit. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this, is that God, nonetheless, sees everything. And God sees everything how it truly and actually is. So despite David's attempt to cover things up, despite David's attempt to color things in a particular way, in a particular persuasion, so that even those people who do know about it don't think it's a terrible thing, we need to know and we need to recognize in this story and in our lives that the Lord sees all things. And in his eyes, this in particular was evil. Now, between those two assessments is another interesting comment that sheds a little bit of light on what's going on. It says um, that Bathsheba, verse 27, became David's wife and bore him a son. As far as I can tell, then, nine months go by, and it seems like the cover-up has worked. It seems like David has gotten away with it. He's done what is necessary to cover over his one sin by committing another sin. Uh, Joab clearly hasn't, you know, blown the whistle. Nobody's come out for his grandpa hasn't seen anything, called the police. Everything seems to be safe and sound and sorted. And that's where we come to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is Nathan, a prophet of God, coming to David and skillfully getting David almost from his own lips to say what he has done is wrong. Nathan tells David a story about a man who takes something from someone else. And David is so filled with rage that he says, that person deserves to die. And in verse 7, Nathan says to David, you are that man. God has seen and God reveals it to Nathan. And then from verse 7 onwards, we read something of God's response to the whole situation. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I am the one who anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more again. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God has seen it all. And this is how God describes it. He says, you are someone who has received so much. I have given you so much. I have given you peace. I have given you rest. I have given you power. I have given you authority. I have given you a throne. I have given you a promise of a name and a dynasty that will last forever. And how do you repay me? The Lord says, you despise me. You despise my word. How specifically has he despised his word? Well, we know. It's so obvious, isn't it? 
God has said, do not commit murder and do not commit adultery. Do not cover your neighbor's wife. And then he spells it out. You've done those exact two things. You've used the Ammonites as an instrument to kill Uriah. You've despised my word. You've taken Uriah's wife as your own. And I don't think he means now subsequently since she's died. I, I think he's speaking about prior when David first saw her and stent and took her for himself. And then he sums it up by saying, do you know what you have done? You have despised me. You have despised the Lord. It's quite spectacular reading how David thinks he's gotten away with it. And David comes in and just shines a light into the very darkest part of David's life. It isn't surprising, I don't think, that David, confronted in that way, comes clean, confesses all. Well, I say confesses all. Verse 13, it says here in my translation, the ESV, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In um, Hebrew, it's just two words, chata Yehovah, like to have missed the mark against God, to have gone astray. It's not remarkable. And actually, I'm, I'm going to suggest this morning that so far, nothing in this story is remarkable. Like nothing there should at all cause us to be shocked. Let's just cycle back through it. Is it shocking that a man who has that much power abuses that power in the way that he does. I don't think it is shocking, because in 2018, we had the Me Too movement, didn't we? Where reports of instances where cover-ups took place, where men who abused their power to abused women were rife in so many different avenues of our society. It's not shocking. It's not really that shocking that it's still happening thousands of years later. Is it shocking that when there's an opportunity for the sin to be exposed, that somebody doubles down in order to cover their tracks, does something even worse to make sure that the truth doesn't come out? I don't find that shocking. I find that pretty typical for how we act and how we live as human beings. Is it shocking that David sent that message to Joab, trying to convince himself and trying to convince Joab that what they'd done wasn't that big a deal? I don't think that's shocking. Again, I think that's just typical of how we are, of how we like to describe the world and our actions so that we end up being the goodies, not the baddies. Is it shocking that, David, uh, that the Lord saw and uncovered what David had done? I don't think that's shocking. I mean, if we've got any kind of comprehension or idea of who God is, surely he is a God who sees all things. That's not shocking. Is it shocking that when David is confronted in this way and has nowhere else to turn, from his own mouth he says, yeah, I'm guilty. I have sinned against the Lord. I don't think that is shocking at all. Nothing of note in that sense has taken place so far in this extremely shocking story. But this is how God responds through Nathan to David. And I think this is genuinely shocking. Nathan said to David, verse 13, The Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. Like, how can that be? No one is above the law. 
No one is above the law. We've got court cases going on in the UK at the moment, whether you like them or not, and whether you appreciate or enjoy the people who are involved in them or not, where people in the very highest places of power are being called into question and will be held accountable to the law. No one is above the law. David, it does not matter whether you are king over Israel and Judah and beyond if your borders increase, you still fall under the jurisdiction of the law. So how can God say to David, the Lord has put away your sin, the Lord has passed over your wrongdoings, the Lord has forgiven you? How? Well, we know the word, I hope, that describes how God can say that. We describe it as grace, don't we? We describe it as God showing kindness when it is utterly undeserved. Now, loads of people will tell you, well, here's the difference between David and Saul. When Saul was confronted with his sin by Samuel earlier, he tried to weasel his way out of it. He tried to kind of confess, but he wasn't really repentant. He said that there was a proper excuse for why he did what he did. But David just confesses. I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it for me. That really genuinely doesn't cut it for me. David just has got nowhere to turn. There's literally no justification for what he's done. And when he's confronted, he says, yeah, okay, guilty. I've been found out. It is God's undeserved kindness to David in this situation that he says your sins are passed over. It's God's unexpected kindness to David in this situation. As a little element or avenue of grace that Jamie was helping us to think through earlier in the year. That there's, there's no sense in which we would expect God to show kindness and forgiveness in this situation. It should flummox us. It should annoy us. It should stress us out that someone who has done the things that he has done, someone who has acted the way that he has acted and thinks that they can get away with it, is seemingly going to get away with it. Grace, although we've noted this as well, haven't we, is always deliberate. God isn't accidentally forgiving David here. What God is showing in his grace is undeserved, it's unexpected, but it really is deliberate. If I was to sum up the whole story, and especially this last interaction, it would be this way. It isn't amazing that David comes clean but it is amazing that God cleanses him. Perhaps you are someone who thinks you could never be forgiven. Some people carry a deep sense of guilt for things that have happened in their lives. I could never be forgiven for what I've done. You don't want that thing to be um, brought out into the light, but you know how awful, how terrible, how scandalizing it is. You're sitting in David's seat. You're wearing David's shoes. He is someone who could never be forgiven and yet was. You may say that you shouldn't be forgiven. And I'd say exactly the same thing. You are sitting in David's seat. You are wearing David's shoes. He shouldn't have been forgiven. And yet he was. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Psalm 51. I just want us to read through or at least hear read 
how David, um, in, in a more full sense, responded to God in this situation. Psalm 51 has the title for the director of music, a psalm of David, written when Nathan the prophet confronted him after his sin with Bathsheba. It's a weird psalm in a sense that there is like a public record, a public song or prayer or poem which link back to this account, the sort of thing that we'd want to keep private. And you'll notice that loads of the details of what has gone on, the murder, uh, the sexual indiscretions, that sort of thing, are left out. And I think probably that's because David is wanting to protect the people that he's hurt. But there's something about the way that he is open and he's honest and processes how he is forgiven by God, which I think will really help us and serve us this morning. So I'm going to read through Psalm 51. I'm going to read it in the NET Bible translation. That's from... Um, net.bible.org, a really helpful resource, by the way, if you want to click on words and see what they are in Hebrew and understand why translators translate things the way that they do. Um, but I really enjoyed this version this week, and I thought it brought to life many of the things in the psalm. Psalm 51, verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Why? Because of your loyal love. Because you are great and compassionate, wipe away my rebellious acts. Wash away my wrongdoing. Cleanse me of my sin. I am aware of my rebellious acts. I am forever conscious of my sin. Against you, you above all, I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. That is practically what God has told him through Nathan the prophet. He's learned that from the Lord. So you are just when you confront me. You are right when you condemn me. That is what should happen. Look, I was guilty of sin from birth, a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. Look, you desire integrity in the inner man. You want me to possess wisdom. I don't match up, do I? Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be pure. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God, if you act and only if you act, will I be able to find forgiveness and cleansing. Grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. May the bones that you have crushed hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all my guilt. Create for me a pure heart, O God. Renew a resolute spirit within me. Do not reject me. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. Sustain me by giving me the desire to obey. Then I will teach rebels your merciful ways and sinners will turn to you. Like David is aware that if people see the grace of God, if people see the forgiveness, the kindness, the love of God acted out and lived out in people, they will respond similarly. And I believe that's what happens when we read the story and we see and we are shocked and challenged by the grace of God that we see it and we can experience it too. Verse 14, rescue me from the guilt of murder, O God, the God who delivers. Then my tongue will shout for joy because of your righteousness. Lord, give me the words. Then my mouth will praise you. Certainly you do not want a sacrifice or else I would offer it. You do not desire a burnt sacrifice. So often we can think of forgiveness with a kind of a swear jar mentality. I've done something wrong. I put a little bit of money in the pot. It's dealt with. It's covered. I've got a prescribed thing that I need to do, and then no one need ask any more questions. David's 
which is so well aware here, and, and he's showing us and teaching us that there's nothing that he can offer except his own life that would make up for the way that he has despised God and the way that he has sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. The sacrifices God desires is a humble spirit, a humble and repentant heart you will not reject, O Lord. Because you favor Zion, do what is good for her, fortify the walls of Jerusalem, then you will accept the proper sacrifices. Burn sacrifices, whole offerings, bulls will be sacrificed on your altar. That's how David processed it. That's how Davis, David comes to terms with his guilt. That's how David calls on the Lord to act. And as I've read that psalm in the past, there's, there's the, the section which speaks about being cleansed by hyssop, which has always stood out to me. Like, why specifically mention the hyssop? And if you do a search for hyssop in the Scriptures, um, it only appears in a couple of occasions. The first time hyssop is mentioned is at the Exodus. Hyssop is the thing that they used to take the blood of the lamb or the goat that was slain and put it on the doorpost. It was kind of part of how they survived the judgment that was coming. Then it's brought up again in Leviticus in Numbers when it's um, being described how people who are unclean, who have the stench of death on them, can be made right again. Again, the hyssop is part of the ritual to remove uncleanliness, to remove death from a person so that they can continue in proper full life with God. It's there in uh, Psalm 51, and then it appears again in the New Testament. I think it's John 19. I'm not sure I wrote this down. John 19, when Jesus is on the cross and he calls out in his agony, in his suffering, I am thirsty, and it is on a hyssop branch that they offer him something to drink. David probably was thinking backwards to Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers and how there were these ways and means in which people who should have been judged, who should have been separated, who should have been rejected and left to die could be made clean again, could be made acceptable, could come to be in the first-class carriage, as Rodri was describing um, on his journey down to London this week, could be where they're not supposed to be by rights. It was a word or a, or a thing associated with grace. God's kindness, which is undeserved and unexpected, but deliberately there to help people. That's probably where David was looking when he wrote about hyssop. But for us, we can also look to Jesus on the cross, can't we? And we can look there and see, well, how is grace, even for David here, but especially for us today, how is grace ours? It is only through Jesus, that kindness that has come to us through him. The story goes on, and I mean, if it's not horrible enough already, it, it gets worse the child dies. David weeps, and he mourns, and he fasts, and he prays for the child to survive, but the child dies, and it's tragic. Uh, his servants come to David in chapter 12, verse 19. David asks him, is the child dead? And they say, yeah, the child has died. But something really, really weird happens then. Um, David stops weeping. He stops mourning. He stops fasting. He goes, it says, verse 24, comforts his wife Bathsheba, which is weird when you consider the relationship that they have. They carry on being husband and wife. She gets pregnant again and has another child. And she calls, or he calls this child, 
Solomon. And it says the Lord loved him. And the Lord sent a message by Nathan the prophet again, and this time it was to call that child Solomon Jedidiah, because the Lord, because of the Lord, and it means loved by the Lord. And it's it's tragic with the death. It's weird with the birth of Solomon again, a name that probably jumps out at us. This is the person. This is the child, the heir who will sit on the throne forever the promise, the one who will build a temple, a very, very famous and the last great king of Israel. And so, why, how, like, what are we to make of a story where David falls, David sins, God says, you won't die, your sins are passed over, but the consequences of your sins will, will last on for generations. Your child is going to die, by the way. There will be fighting and war in the nation and especially in your family for generations to come. The child does die, and then a little bit later, another child is born whose name is Peace, and his name is Loved by God. Now, this is just putting my neck out there, but this is how I would describe what's going on. David and Bathsheba's child, who dies, is reborn, and is reborn bringing peace and being the beloved one of the Lord. And I'm not saying that's like literally what happens, but that is how the author is pulling these pictures and these stories together. That the child who they loved so much dies, but comes back to them in Solomon, the heir, the prince of peace, the beloved son. And that should straight away show us and link us to Jesus, shouldn't it? That there is this much-loved son on numerous occasions, the father's voice is heard from heaven, and it says, this is my son whom I love. He is the one who dies and comes back to life, is reborn, the prince of peace, the heir to the throne. How can we be forgiven? How can we be cleansed? How can we, in our shocking state of sinfulness and rejection, Though probably never having done anything as extreme as David, yet having despised God's word and despised him just as much, how can we know that passing over and that cleansing? Well, surely it is just by crying out in exactly the same way of David, cleanse me with hyssop. Looking back to how sin was covered over, how death was dealt with, looking forward to Jesus, the one who comes, who dies as a consequence for our sins, who rises to life again and rises with healing and with forgiveness and cleansing. We've got the communion table before us and um, some of the guys at the front are going to help us take it together now. And they are pointers. They are pointers specifically to Jesus, specifically to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, and his coming back again. They are specifically an opportunity for each one of us to say with as simple a words as David did when he was confronted by his sin, I have sinned against the Lord. I have missed the mark. Uh, whether it's in an extreme way or in our ways that we have come and told ourselves, aren't that bad really? that we need him to do something. We need him to cleanse us with his stuff. We need that loved son to die and to come back to life again, to rescue us 
and to make us clean. The, the bread, which represents the fact that Jesus' body was lived in and broken for us. The juice, which represents the fact that Jesus' blood was shed, that there are consequences. Though there is forgiveness, there are consequences to our rejection and our rebellion against God, but given to us so that we remember we can be forgiven. We can be cleansed. We can be made whole. We can take our seat, not just in the first-class carriage, but in the royal throne room, that we can be where God has called us and put us as part of his family. The guys are going to camp. We're going to take it together. I'm going to pray as they go around. And I'm offering you a chance, whether you're a believer or not, to do this this morning as a declaration that you need God, that you need God to be the one who passes over your sins. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus' body. We thank you that that son was not afraid to come and to live in this broken, hostile, horrible world, a world that is scarred by the consequences of our sin that in his body he was not afraid to live and to die for our sakes. Lord, bless this to us as we consider the son who came to die and to rise in our place. Lord, we thank you as well for the juice, for the wine, which symbolizes to us, which signifies Jesus' blood that was shed. Lord, that helps us to see and to think about fully the consequences of our despising you, of our rejecting you of how death is the natural, logical, sensible, just result of when we turn our backs, when we go our own way, when we see, when we take for ourselves things which you have not given us, Lord. And yet Jesus shed his blood so so willingly for us to cleanse us, to forgive us, to wash us whiter and purer than the driven snow, Lord God, that we could be made whole, that we could be called children of the Most High. Lord, help us to take it as a declaration that we have sinned and yet Christ has done what is necessary for your scandalous grace to be ours, Lord, to be that which changes our lives, which makes it so that we can be passed over and we can enjoy adoption into your family. Be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.